0: Ran out, but I will give you the best deal you can find on anything else in the store. How about some uh, violets, African violets, instead? Customer replied, "Sadly, no. It, it was red geraniums that my wife asked me to water." <laughs> <laughs> You'd think that fairly simple task like watering the plants wouldn't be too hard for a guy. And Lauren and I uh, decided, you know, we're moving into a new place, and we decided. We need a theme for our apartment, and we decided that theme was going to be jungle, and so uh, we've got some plants, and, and for a while you had to uh, kinda go through a maze to get through the apartment between them all, and we've had our ups and downs. We've uh, put some a little too close to the window, some a little too far away from the window. Some are in rehabilitation now, <laughs> uh, and it seems like some people just aren't born with a green thumb. But in our parable that we read this morning, we learned God wants us to be farmers, whether we think we're good at it or not. And even for those who feel uh, ill-equipped for that role, we need to learn how to get better, how we can be better sowers of God's seed. So you know, I started to realize this is a really well-placed class time because you know we can go in and, and we can study something in the morning and then here in the evening we can apply it a little more practically and, and uh, talk about it and discuss it together. So this evening I want to turn from that you know, general concept that we established this morning because I think you know, everyone in this room can say they know it is better, it is important that they learn how to get better at letting their light shine and, and showing or sowing the seed of God's word in the world. We know that general concept already. So tonight I want to get more specific. So what are some specific examples of how we can purposely share the gospel with those. This morning we saw specifically talking about people who don't want to hear it. We said there's some people uh, who, who it just feels like a brick wall when you talk about what you think is the greatest message the world has ever received, and yet you tell it to some people, and you just get a blank stare in return. So what are some specific examples of how we can overcome that? Persistence? Okay. What else? Don't what? Don't worry, don't worry about yourself. Okay. So don't worry about your image, your, your uh, standing. Just go for it because what you're doing and sowing the seed of God's word is more important than anything temporary in this world. What else? Pray, Pray about it. Absolutely. Pray for those doors of opportunity. Andy. Okay. How so? Okay. Are you talking about when we go and talk to somebody about God's word? Just in general. So be a, a shining example of gratitude. Absolutely. Social media. Absolutely. If we're going to talk very specifically, that, and we saw... Um, you know, this morning, uh, letting our light shine, that is certainly a place where there's a lot of darkness, and we can be a light shining in contrast. Okay, absolutely. So this morning there's different types of soil, and sometimes the seed's not going to grow, but the sower didn't stop sowing because of that. Christina? This is where can't go to church Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my friends when they pull they're like, oh, so this is how it I said, well no, it's a bad So blatant manipulation is also a tool. Yeah, okay. Anything else? Yeah, they they know by the light that hmm to uh set Okay. So some people respond to different things. Absolutely. Christy. can't go too far into it. I've got a quick story. You know, I was at a coffee shop studying one day. I went into this coffee shop every, I don't know, what was it, Monday or something? I don't know. I, I chose a day and I went there um, and I sat and I had my Bible open and, and I was just working and, and people would come up and talk occasionally and ask questions. And one guy came up and said, I see you're studying here. I see people stopping by. Is it okay if I stop and pray with you? And so that difference between saying, you know, I'm going to go and pray for you and people appreciate that. But I can tell you, I appreciated that guy stopping and praying with me right then and there, not saying, you know, I'm gonna write in a notebook and do it tonight, but doing it right there with me um, made a huge difference. So finding those different avenues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're gonna keep coming back to this question. So hopefully as we read through, we'll think of some other ideas and we'll have an opportunity um, to share those with each other as we go forward. But Matthew 13, getting back um, to now Matthew's record of this parable, says, Jesus then spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, but they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, one Sunday I preached on this, and a modern-day farmer came up to me, um, told me, Brandon, you've got this all wrong. You just preached for thirty minutes, I don't think you got a lick of it right. Um, And I said, okay, well, why do you say that? Because I always read this, and I thought, you know, this was somewhat of a a haphazard, method that the farmer was using he he had some seeds the ground was cheap and so he was just throwing them out seeing where they fell this farmer said no that's probably not the case you know the the ground um palestine it was difficult they would have to work it beforehand he wasn't uh just haphazardly throwing it he wanted it to go to a specific place it's not that he was purposely throwing it on the thorns or on the path that would just be Foolish of him. No, he was throwing it for a specific purpose and he worked hard to prepare some ground. This isn't a parable about uh, not having any preparation and just winging it in our uh, evangelism. We are still to prepare, but the farmer did have a target. He wanted the seed to grow uh, and so most of the seed would be aimed at the prepared earth, but what he was doing, I, I think I have a picture, he was casting it out. They didn't have all the tools we have today. So yes, there was prepared soil, but as he threw out the seed, it also would land on these other parts. And that's important because Jesus' parable shouldn't be seen as a, rebu- a rebuke against our preparation. Certainly shouldn't be seen um, as telling us that there's just some soil that's never going to work out for us. All soil can be worked over time, Turn from that thorny soil to that or that rocky soil, and become good, fertile soil. That can happen. We are to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive God's words. We're to work uh, on preparing the hearts and minds of others to receive God's word. It doesn't just happen uh, naturally. But this parable also makes it very clear that the seeds were cast out, and they sometimes fell outside of that good, prepared soil. Sometimes we work with someone for months and months and months and it goes nowhere. We've done everything we can to prepare that soil to receive the seed, and it's just not happening. And other times, we throw out a seed on what we consider a rocky soil, and it happens. Some of it falls on a nearby hard-packed pathway, others fall amongst the rocks, some fall on weedy ground, and then some falls on this fertile ground that had to have been prepared so that the seed takes root and it gives a bountiful crop. And as Matthew recorded it in chapter three or 13, Verse 18, this is what Jesus told us this whole parable means. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some So Jesus is telling a story, and he's telling the story to illustrate how God intended to spread the gospel across the land, to bring people to salvation. But I think reading the the parable itself and then the application of it, there's a couple of things that might seem odd to us as we are approaching this on a practical level for how we're to go about telling people about Jesus. First, the parable seems to give the impression uh, that God isn't that concerned about where his seed goes. Yes, the soil that is prepared well will have a better chance of growing deep and strong roots, but if the seed lands on less well-prepared soil, that's fine too. And Just think about that for a minute. The seed is the Word of God. The seed belongs to God. It is precious. It is literally what offers life, not just in its figurative sense, but literally it offers life. And now since the seed belongs to God, wouldn't we think he'd be a little more selective? This morning we read in Ephesians chapter 2 how uh, Christ built his church out of the people who receive this seed. Don't you think he'd be a little more selective in who he chooses? That's not how it plays out. You know, The footpath and the rocky soil and the weedy soil, they all get a shot at this seed, so why? Why does God allow his seed to fall on what everybody else can see is unsuitable soil? What? They are valued by God. Why? Why would these people who are thorny and rocky be valued by God? Hm? They're, They're still soil. They're his creation. What else? He doesn't want Jesus came to save, not to destroy the earth. What else? Why doesn't God care about the condition of the soil as much as we might care? We might go and work hard to prepare soil, and we want the seed to go right there, but God says, eh, if it falls somewhere else, that's okay, too. at The people that he chose to this Mm-hmm. They weren't good soil. They they were bad, bad soil. Okay. What else? He knows more than we do? What does it mean that God doesn't allow the seed of his word, or he does allow it to be thrown on unsuitable soil? What does that mean for us in this room practically? Hmm? Absolutely. We can thank God that he allows his seed to fall on unsuitable soil. Why? Because we are unsuitable soil. Romans 3.23 warns me that I have sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, a couple chapters later, tells me that earned me death. And this seed is coming here and it offers me life, literally and figuratively. And of course, the harsher the soil, the harder it might be to get a crop, but you can still get a crop. That's how Paul went from being the worst of sinners to being the tool that God used to establish congregation after congregation and write over half of our New Testament. Just as an example, Isaiah 53.2. Let's see if I, no, I don't. Isaiah 53.2, it says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of, does anyone remember the prophecy? Dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness, and we shall see, and when we shall see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. Anyone have any idea what that's talking about? Christ, the root out of the dry ground, the unsuitable ground, was Jesus. The soil should not have yielded a harvest. Israel proved that over and over again, that they shouldn't have produced a harvest from God, but they did and they produced our Savior. Now, this is how this affects how we share the good news practically. There are groups of people, sometimes even we adopt this philosophy, where we only want good people of good soil here with us. We only want children from good homes. We only want uh, couples that dress nice. We only want young people rather than old. We only want uh, people who will make us look good and pay the bills and that's who we look for. We look for that fertile soil. It's going to help us move forward, and if we miss the point of the parable, that might become us. But those weren't the kind of people that Jesus spent his time with. Who did Jesus spend his time with? Sinners. Like what? I think it's important to name some of them, because I think it would be shocking if me, one of the elders, goes out today and met with some of these people. Who did he meet with? The woman at the well, and who was she? More than that. a divorcee, adulteress. Who else did he meet with? Oh, that's the worst of them. (laughs) You better not see me meeting with any of those. He met with prostitutes. He met with tax collectors. He met with sinners. He met with people who the rest of the world says, that's dry ground. That's the worst kind of ground. You don't want that around you, Jesus. And so God doesn't seem concerned about which soil his seed falls on. He's confident of the power of the seed. The soil doesn't matter as much. It's the harvest he's looking for, and that's important for us because as much as we like, might like to look at other soil and say, no, that's dry, that's worthless, that was us. So we can thank God that he allows his seed to fall on the less fertile ground. Secondly, the parable may seem odd because I think it kind of makes the sower sound lazy. You know, there is a way that he could go with those seeds and put them one by one into the fertile soil, right? That's not what he does though. Throws it out so it lands everywhere. He's not very careful with the seed, but the seed is supposed to be precious. It offers life. It's his livelihood. Uh, So why does he not carefully place each seed so it produces 30, 60, 100 times the fruit of what was sown? Why do you think? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. They didn't have the tools to do it. I, I think that's pretty reasonable. What else? You didn't have a 7,000 planner. What does that mean for our evangelism today? Mm-hmm. And We could. And sometimes we do, right? We say, I've got a best friend. I want him to know Christ so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying. Nothing wrong with that. We have to recognize sometimes we get so caught up in our own lives that we fail to see that we are living in a mission field with millions of people that we're in contact with. I think on Facebook we can legitimately say that. Millions of people that we could reach with the gospel if we just looked up and said it's time to start casting out seeds. I got to thinking about a a missionary who traveled to Mexico. He was struck by the number of rocks that were scattered across the landscape. There were millions of them. You know, rocks the size of your fist, the size of, of softballs, watermelons, uh, giant boulders. And he asked his guide where they all came from. And she said, well, you know, this is about the only thing we can grow. We are uh, as literally as we can put it, a rock garden. And so he goes into town and he sees an actual garden there. Um, and it's producing some corn and he's looking at it and he realizes there's still rocks there. There's boulders even in this plot of garden, and he asked himself why would a farmer plant corn in such a rock-filled yard? Well, the point is, if a man wanted a crop, that's what he had. That was the, 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 I don't know, 20 square feet, I don't know what a garden plot is. That's the little plot of land he had. He didn't have a giant uh, rock-free farm to, to plant his crop on. If he wanted to bear fruit, This is what he had to work with. And the farmer in Jesus' parable did the same thing. He's scattering his seed over the land he had, trusting that the seed would bear fruit. And today we had Mission Sunday, right, where we talked about some of the incredible work that that the missionaries we support, the men and women uh, who are doing this work around the world. And it's remarkable. And we should do more and more uh, over the next months and years to support them with our our prayers and our encouragement and our, our financial support. We are to share the gospel with every corner of the earth. And from what we see here, that is exactly, or what I see here, that's exactly what we're striving to do. But we also need to recognize there's land right here. There is work to be done right here. And sometimes it seems a lot easier to write a check to someone else to say, You can go and do the hard work of evangelism somewhere else. To say, uh, you can go and do the training. You can go and do the Bible study. You can go and have those uncomfortable interactions somewhere halfway across the world. When we're sitting right here, we have the equipment. We have the training. We have the Bible easily accessible that we can go next door and do the same thing ourselves. Not that we should do one or the other. It's that we should do both. And we should see that the work that those missionaries are doing, the same work that we should be doing here, that we they are a part of... This congregation and the work we're doing here, it's just an extension of that. But in the parable, the farmer worked with the land that he had, and we should too. And it might seem hard, but God's word has the power to be fruitful. One man went through all the gospel accounts, and he tried to find... um, He was writing a a textbook for missionaries, training missionaries. And he uh, tried to catalog all the places where Jesus met people... And how? Where do you think Jesus met people? Everywhere he went? Along the way? Along along the side of the road? Where else? What? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) okay, in a tree? What in a book? Okay. What about the temples and the synagogues? Did you meet people there? Kind of like our, our buildings today. Obviously not the same we know from scripture, but we treat our buildings sometimes like they did the temples and the synagogues. Unfortunately, they, this guy he put it all together. He found 132 contacts that Jesus had with ordinary people. So I, that will exclude the times that, that he was um, you know before political bodies. Six were in the temple, four were in the synagogues, 122 were in all those ways that we just listed in the daily walks of life. Jesus taught people where they were, and his point, the this, this scholar's point, was Jesus thought outside the box. He thought outside the temple, he thought outside the synagogue, and so if you and I are going to reach people for Jesus, if we're going to follow his example, we've got to do that too. We've got to think outside the church building sometimes, we've got to also, I think for some of us, we need to think outside of foreign mission fields as well. That's become our box, that that's where we do evangelism. And here we just meet in a building and say, this isn't a mission field anymore. We've got to get outside of our comfort zone and just start meeting people in their daily walks of life. So practically, what does that mean? What kind of things can we do practically to tell people about Jesus in our daily walks of life? Christy. Yes. So it's hot, I'm standing there and in my mind I'm I'm standing next to these people and trying to get behind me. And it's so easy when there is a conversation that segways into religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just trying to teach people about Jesus or preach at people about Jesus. What can we do in our daily walks of life to tell people about Jesus? Okay. Mm Okay. Yeah. Mm hmm. Austin? Uh, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a balance there finding needs, but you also have to make that segue. I think sometimes it's easy for me to find needs, fill them. I failed to make the segue into it, and Christ never failed to do that. So, in back. Christ didn't, and I think we've established this, he didn't tell this parable to tell us that there's some soil that is just bad, that's never going to change. He told it so that we could prepare ourselves to go and, and show people the light of the gospel. That's what that second parable said, Uh, and he told us the reason why he spoke it in a parable like we talked about this morning wasn't so that people would misunderstand. It was to show people that they were already misunderstanding and telling us how we can explain it in a more full way. And sometimes that's not just about teaching or or talking to them. Sometimes it's about acting in a way that shines the light of Christ. And Isaiah 55.10 tells us the power that God's word has. God declares, for as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven and do not return there and water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so that my word be that goes forth from my mouth it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what i please for it shall prosper in the thing for which i sent it there is power in god's seed in the word of god and and god scatters it over all the earth because it has the power to take root in the harshest ground, which is good news for us. And once it takes root, it can start to bear fruit. And that's the whole point. Another final quick story. Back in the 70s, a, a man and his wife were driving through Cape Cod, found this blueberry field. And they said, you know what? We're going to stop here, and we're going to eat some blueberries. And so they go out, and, they, and they're getting their fill. They come back, and they see their trunk hatch open. And they're like, well, we don't know why that is. And so they, they start to walk around it. They're getting a little nervous. They see a guy in the back what's going on. Uh, He's just chowing down on this cantaloupe that they got on uh, a fruit stand a couple miles back. Hey, shouted the husband, that is my cantaloupe. The old guy swallowed the bite he had in his mouth, and with a nod, in the direction of the field, he replied, them's my blueberries. (laughs) There are people who forget that God is like that farmer. He owns everything, He owns everything because he created everything. And even more importantly, he owns us. He bought us. And when we became Christians, we gave ourselves over to him. When we confess that he was now our Lord and master, those aren't just empty religious words. Those are definitions of the position he's now in in our lives. He is our master. As if we are his slaves, we were declaring that we now belonged to Jesus. When we were buried in the waters of Christian baptism, we put on Christ. He enveloped us. We said to Christ, you own me. You own every part of me. And Paul writes in Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We are married to Christ so that we can bear fruit. In other words, Jesus died for us, he bought us, and because of that, he owns us. He has the right then to expect something from us. And he tells us what it is, it is to bear fruit. He has every right to expect that we are going to be Productive. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, he preaches this over and over again, that we should bear fruit, whether that's in our attitudes, whether that's in our devotion to him, whether that's in our endurance of persecution, over and over and over again, we are to bear fruit. John 15:16. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Matthew twelve thirty three. either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit or known by what we produce for God. And finally, John fifteen four. abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. The opposite of that is also true. If i 'm not bearing fruit, I am not abiding in God, for without me, you can do nothing. I am the true vine in matthew twelve thirty three and my father is the vine dresser. every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What that tells me is that bearing fruit is a very serious thing with God and one more man pointed out the principal goal of Sowing, any time you put anything into the ground, you want more to come up, otherwise you're just burying something, putting in uh, treasure for someone to find later. The fundamental law of the harvest is reaping more than we sow. Every farmer lives by this principle. If his work only returned exactly what he planted in the ground, his labor is futile. He would never gain anything extra from his efforts so that he could use it to feed his family or sell it for a profit. And he said, "Consider, consider the potential of one kernel of corn. One kernel of corn will produce one corn stalk. Each stalk produces one ear of corn. The average ear of corn has 250 kernels, and so that single kernel of corn will yield a 250% increase. Now, in the parable of the sower, we're told about 30, 60, 100 times increase, right? That's what we are expected to bear fruit, and different plants will have different Uh, numbers of kernels or seeds, depending upon what type of plants they are, but they will all produce a crop that is more than what was sown. Otherwise, there is no point in what we're doing. If we are not producing more than what was put into us, there isn't a point in what we're doing. So we must bear fruit. Question is, what does that mean? We see this over and over again. This is the command to bear fruit. What does Jesus mean? What does it mean to bear fruit for God? Bringing others to Christ, certainly an example. What else? What? Influence for good. good. What else? Influence for good, bringing people to Christ. When else? Austin. Okay. Okay. Obedience to his will. Anything else? I can see three categories where the Bible uses this term, bearing fruit. The first, we are expected to bear fruit in our attitudes. Galatians 5.22, we know this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And it helps to understand the fruit of the Spirit by what it's contrasted with In Galatians 5.14 says for all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another beware lest you be consumed by one another now the works of the flesh that he's contrasting the fruit of the spirit with are evident which are adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery hatred contentions jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So bearing fruit first means it's in my attitude. My attitude has to be bearing fruit for God. And if it is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then I'm not going to be biting and devouring other questions. I'm not going to have hatred in my heart towards others. I'm not going to be uh, jealous or envious of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I won't have anything to do with something that's going to divide a congregation uh, of the Lord's church. Instead, Galatians 522 tells us that the fruit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit means I'm going to seek to create an atmosphere of love around me. I'm going to create an atmosphere of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness around me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. And as Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. It tells us very clearly what our fruit is to be in our attitude. But secondly, our attitudes can't stop there. Otherwise, again, they're kind of worthless. They have to lead to actions. Faith without works is dead. Paul wrote, we pray this in order that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of of God in Colossians one 1.10. In other words, when we bear fruit, we're going to be doing good works. We'll be doing good things for Jesus. The good works that won't save us are already saved, and we shouldn't think of our actions as something who we can get something out of God that way, or we can try to level the playing field with God. We don't use good works to barter with him, but these good works are just the byproducts of our grateful heart. These are the things we do, because we love Jesus, and he abides in us, right? If, we, if he abides in us, then we are going to bear fruit. That's what it means to produce the fruit of good works. And thirdly, bearing fruit for God, it involves our attitudes and our actions. And this morning, we also saw that those attitudes and actions will hopefully lead to this last aspect of how we can bear fruit for God. Uh, faithful attitudes and faithful actions win souls. Proverbs 11.30, it says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. You see, ultimately, we want to win souls for Christ. That is our major goal. I win them by inviting them to church. I win them by talking to them about Jesus. But ultimately, I win souls by my attitudes, that influence my actions, by the fruit of our hearts that they see in our lives. The message of this parable, and the second one especially, about uh, letting our light shine it is very practical. The seed falls on all kinds of soil, but the best soils were the ones that yielded a harvest of 30 to 100 times that what was sown. So the question to ask ourselves today is what kind of harvest are we yielding for Jesus? How deeply has that seed taken root in our souls. Besides being faithful on Sunday morning worships, which everyone in this room is, and I want to let you know how grateful. Someone said, uh, thanks for being here. I have to tell you, thanks for being here. I sure like someone to speak with. But what are we doing for Jesus right now? What are we doing practically to bear fruit? That's the evidence that we see in our lives that Christ is abiding in us, not by uh, where we place membership one day and keep coming back to. It is by our attitudes and our actions and hopefully the result of that is to win souls. What can we do better over the next seven days until we meet again to bear fruit for Christ? And The question for us today is what have we done with the seed God gave us? If you haven't taken advantage of that gift that the seed offers, salvation, the opportunity to start glorifying God and his kingdom, you're ready to let it grow in your life, uh, repent, be baptized, I encourage you to come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing so we can help you.